podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. There's a universal quality to childhood fears. We all somehow fear the same things, from every part of the world, in every bed at night. We lie awake, staring at slightly different patterns and slightly different ceilings, and the same terror hums inside of us, threatening the shiny lies the daytime tells us, confirming that we are unloved, unsafe, and unwelcome, no matter our circumstance. They remain unseen and unheard, held at bay by whispered mantras, blanket fortresses, and unspoken pacts between children in the supernatural realm for the fear to remain hypothetical. And then at 11 p.m. on Friday night, when I was eight years old, my boogeyman broke all the rules. Somehow my dad had gotten a hold of the brightest flashlight legally allowed, and let me tell you, when I say it was the brightest flashlight legally allowed, I wonder who set that bar, because that thing could shoot into space. It should have been illegal it was so bright. Being an eight-year-old boy, it was, of course, the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I became completely preoccupied with playing with it, and, considering it could very easily blind me, my father refused to let me touch it without his supervision. And so, I did what every eight-year-old boy would do and hatched a plan to sneak out with the flashlight when everyone was asleep, so I could have unlimited, unsupervised time to play with it. One truth about eight-year-old boys. When presented with something loud, bright, or dangerous, they will do anything in their power to get closer to that thing, determined to bend it to their underdeveloped will. And for me that summer, that thing was that flashlight. I was responsible enough as a child that I knew I couldn't carry out my plan on a school night, because it would mean that I wouldn't get enough sleep. So I waited, in agonizing anticipation of Friday night at 11 p.m., when my family would be fast asleep, and I could be reunited with the object of my desire. I gently lowered myself out of the bed, sneaked past my older brother, who was openly snoring on his side of the room, and maneuvered past my parents' room and through the house, without stepping on any of the creaky floorboards, which I'd memorized over the years. Another universal truth is that we all subconsciously memorized all the sounds, tricks, and quirks that were specific to our homes. Stealthily, I made my way to the closet next to the front door, brought over one of our kitchen chairs so I could reach the highest shelf, and carefully retrieved it from the towel my father wrapped it in, in a weak attempt to deter us from using it without him. I also knew exactly how to line up the gate so it didn't squeak as I exited the main part of our yard into acres and acres of flat land and cornfields that surrounded us. They stretched far in every direction. I walked to the point on our property that was the furthest away from our house and pulled the flashlight out from under my arm and cradled it in my hands like the precious treasure it was. I felt the power of the flashlight surging through my hands and shivered with the anticipation of wielding it on my own, unencumbered by my father's stern warnings or my brother's pleas to have a turn. I made a little tent with the side of my jacket and sheepishly turned it on while in my jacket cave. 
a test to see if anyone was awake and watching. I counted to a hundred, and when no one came storming out of the house, I shifted the excessively bright beam of light down to the ground, then at a stump, and when I was confident my family was fast asleep, I pointed the light straight up into the sky, marveling at how high it could travel before it started to fade out of view. I clicked it on and off, in a makeshift Morse code, hoping beyond hope that some celestial being several galaxies away would see my signal and send me a sign. I'd click the light off and count to a hundred again, waiting for a return of my Morse code. But the sky remained empty but for the thick blanket of stars you can see every night when you live deep in the country. Eventually I got tired of waiting for life on another planet to take notice of my manic flashing and looked around for the next phase of my exploration and immediately wondered what kinds of nocturnal critters I could catch in my beam. Potato bugs the size of my thumb or the raccoons who were in a constant battle with my father to infiltrate our trash containers were the first things that sprung to mind. I clicked the light back on, took a deep breath, and swung the beam toward the core, excited for the scurry of bodies from between the stalks. But what I saw scared me so badly. I've never been the same since. The beam landed on what looked like 30 or 40 shiny green diamond-shaped eyes. They looked a lot like cat eyes, except they were sideways, with the longest part of the diamond spanning from top to bottom and the cat-like pupils from left to right. There was an otherworldly hiss, and all of the eyes snapped shut in unison when my light fell on them. I stumbled backwards, stifling the massive scream that was bubbling up inside of me, and turned and ran into the house, dropping the flashlight somewhere in the yard along the way. I scrambled up to the porch, threw open the door, and slammed it behind me, making an awful racket that woke my entire family. They came flying down the stairs in their pajamas, bleary-eyed and concerned. I ran into my mother's arms, shaking and near tears, and my father pulled me away from her and demanded to know what was going on with the intensity of a man who's ready to protect his land and family at all costs. I explained to him what I'd seen, and he set off to explore the cornfield, mumbling threats that I was going to be in serious trouble if he didn't find anything. He was gone for about 15 minutes, during which time my mother was able to calm me down enough to face my father when he came back. Yet another universal truth. Children can guess how long they're about to be grounded for just by looking at their parents' face. And when my father returned, I knew he was even more pissed than when he'd left. Not only did he not see anything in the field, I'd cracked the glass in his expensive flashlight when I'd dropped it, and I knew that would also be the end of my flashlight privileges, which was fine with me. Something inside of me shifted when I saw that row of eyes watching me from the corn, and I knew it would be a very long time before I went outside at night by myself again, if ever. Son, there are all kinds of rodents and critters in the corn at night. You need to grow up, and if you ever wake me and your mother up like that again, I'm going to tan your hide too. Come on, Jane, he said, and my parents vanished upstairs, leaving me shaking in the kitchen wondering what I'd seen and how much closer they had gotten to the house, followed by wondering how big they were and if they could climb or open windows or break windows and what it all meant for me and the safety of my family. I turned to my brother to try to recruit him as an ally. Jake, you have to believe me. 
There's something in the corn, and it's not just raccoons. I swear to God, I said, and held up my hand in a Boy Scout salute. You're such a baby, he said with disgust. You've watched too many alien movies, and the next thing you know, thunderstorms are going to make you cry. Grow up. And with that, he was gone too. My brother's words stung, but I knew he was right. I was a baby. I was eight years old, but I was a very scared and sensitive eight-year-old, despite my constant attempts to be more tough and brave. I wanted to be more like the fearless, scrappy kids I went to school with, but I was a thinker, and thinking makes you aware, and awareness makes you naturally scared. Seeing those eyes in the corn showed me that I had a reason to be scared, a real, present, threatening, and terrifying reason, and as I fully processed what had just happened, a new type of dread descended on my young heart and mind. I was in trouble. We all were. And I had no idea what to do about it. My whole family could be massacred by those monsters at any moment. Maybe the whole world would be in peril. And I was the only one who knew. Up to that point, I had been anxious and sort of a shy child. But the horrible realization that the threats I'd seen in movies and books were real and waiting just outside my house to do who knows what turned me into a dark and very troubled child. Almost instantly. I stole the steak knife from the counter and stayed up all night, keeping watch out of our front windows for those green sideways eyes to emerge from the corn and make their way toward our house in battle formation, ready to dominate the human race, starting with my family. I dozed off a few times, but would snap awake in a panic and scan the darkness for the brood. But they stayed put that night, and I finally allowed myself to go to bed when the sun came up, convinced they would save their attack for the cover of night, like they always did in the scary comics I'd read. This continued for weeks, and after a month and a half of keeping vigil, I was a disaster. I'd lost weight, and my eyes were ringed in dark lines from lack of sleep, turning me into a ghoulish rendition of the bright-eyed Midwestern kid I'd been before. My mom begged my father to let her take me to a doctor, but my father refused, insisting I needed to suck it up and be a man, along with a slew of other unhelpful old-fashioned ideas about how boys should be raised. So I fell deeper into my darkness, propelled by the persistent fear that the eyes were always watching and biding their time for their eventual attack. Eventually, I got too tired to care enough to stay up, and resigned to myself that one night I would fall asleep and be ripped to shreds in my bed by an army of corn monsters, which caused me to sink into an even deeper depth of depression and existential dread. A year passed without any sign of the creatures, but my dread never lifted. If anything, the shock and horror of the threat lurking outside my front door also revealed to me just how selfish and unhelpful my parents, and most of the adults around me were. I realized that they were generally only interested in things that would make their lives easier, and a stressed out and fearful child was a direct threat to those things, and so I finally truly saw myself through their eyes. They tolerated me, but just barely, and it became suddenly and painfully clear that I was more or less on my own. The plus side of becoming a miserable, brooding child was that it hardened me in many ways, and by the time I was a preteen, it started to make me cool. My dark eyes, gaunt face, and unkempt hair gave me a sort of mystique as I sulked down the hallway at school, and before I knew it, 
Other dark, gaunt, miserable kids slinked out of the woodwork and started offering me cigarettes and inviting me over to listen to strange and electrifying music after school. By the time I was 13, our collective misery had hardened us into a pack of wild and unruly weirdos, and my bond with my troubled peers gave me the first sense of security that I'd felt since before I'd accidentally discovered the creatures when I was a soft young boy. Of course, my parents pushed as hard as they could against their bizarre and almost unrecognizable son, and their discomfort only made me double down in my quest to be dark and untouchable. And the harder they pushed, the stranger I got. My friends and I dyed each other's hair shocking blue and violent red. We took turns icing each other's body parts to drive homemade piercings through. And my best friend Zach learned how to do stick and poke tattoos from his older cousin. So by the time I was 15, my upper legs and torso were covered in wobbly expressions of my fear and rage. Zach and I were practically inseparable at that point, and my parents let him spend the majority of his time at our house, because I think they were too afraid of what we'd do if they didn't. While my parents were selfish and preoccupied, they were generally decent parents, and their biggest sin was ignoring the needs of their children. Zach's parents, on the other hand, were hateful and abusive, and seemed dead set on destroying Zach and his two siblings. His older sister had gotten pregnant when she was 16 and had been living with a man twice her age ever since. His older brother was in jail, and so Zach was left to fend for himself. Zach and I shared a wicked sense of humor and loved making mischief together. But if I was honest with myself, I was always a little scared of him. He had a dark side simmering just below the surface, and I saw flashes of what I could only describe as evil in my friend on occasion. One time, I watched him unhook a neighbor's dog from its chain in the backyard and lure it into the nearby cornfield. I hoped beyond hope that the dog simply ran away after he let him loose and found a wonderful new life on a farm, but the chain in the yard remained empty every single time I passed the neighbor's house, and I got a sinking feeling every time I saw it. Another time, Jacob Carson, who was a year older than us, made fun of Zach's mom's job at Walmart and I saw a darkness flash across his face that I didn't know a human being was capable of. The next thing I knew, Zach had broken Jason's finger and was in the process of breaking a second one when Jason's brother tackled him and forced him to stop. The two older boys rushed off to find help, and I swear I've never seen Zach happier than he was after he inflicted that much pain. Despite the darkness and danger that Zach carried, he remained my closest friend and confidant. If I'm being completely honest... Knowing what Zack was capable of made me feel somehow safer. He was the first person who made me feel like he was powerful enough to protect me in some way, and I knew I needed protecting. I didn't care that his power stemmed from his anger, and he could just as easily turn that anger against me. I needed the escape that our friendship offered. One night, when we were 16, Zack and I were laying in my backyard, passing a bottle of cheap liquor between us, and we were in the specific kind of emotional and introspective mood that only two teen boys can muster. It was very late, and we were very drunk, and Zach opened up about his parents for the first time since I'd met him. He cried, admitting how hurt he was, and how he fantasized about leaving them behind and starting a new life, where he could be a new and happier version of himself. I barely breathed as he poured out his secrets, and once he was done... I knew I needed to share something equally important and personal, 
or Zack might get embarrassed at his own vulnerability and might clam up, or worse, lash out. Something lives in that field, I said, as I pulled myself into a sitting position and pointed in the direction I'd seen the creatures when I was just a boy. Something fucking awful, like a monster or something. Get the fuck out of here, Zack said and pushed me with a laugh, making the booze in the bottle slosh to the top. I'm fucking serious, I said, and stared at the field, willing the eyes to appear through the rows of corn and validate what I was saying. I saw them when I was eight, and I know they're still there. I don't know how, but I do, I said. And as I said those words out loud, I knew it was true. I had felt their presence and their persistent gaze for all those years, day and night. Follow me, I said, and grabbed Zack's arm, yanking him up and spilling the rest of the booze as I dragged him toward the shed on the other side of the house. I opened the old door that led to my dad's long-abandoned workshop, found his massive toolbox in a dusty corner in the back of the shed, and opened it, hoping I'd find what I needed inside. Sure enough, nestled under a couple of half-broken hand tools, was the object that had ruined my life and transformed me into the odd and fearful boy I'd become. My dad's super-powered flashlight. I chuckled a little, thinking back to how cool I'd thought it was at the time, and grabbed it from the box, praying it still worked. I found a couple of batteries in another part of the shed, popped them in the flashlight, and sighed a huge sigh of relief when it turned on. What the fuck, man? Zack said and shielded his eyes as I inadvertently blinded him by pointing it in his direction. Shh. I hissed and clicked the light back off. I want to show you those things, but I think we'll need to sneak up on them. Zack nodded solemnly, and I could suddenly see what he must have been like as a little boy. His earnestness and excitement almost broke my heart, and I shook it off as I remembered that I was about to confront the creatures that had been tormenting me my entire life, so I needed to focus. I gestured toward the front door of the shed, and then toward the cornfield, like we were in some gothic teen version of the Marines. Then Zack nodded again and followed me back out and slowly toward the field. When we were about twenty feet away, I motioned for Zack to stop then swung the flashlight in the direction of the field and took a deep breath. I fought the urge to close my eyes as my finger depressed the switch on the shaft of the light, and with an audible click, the light was on, and an amazingly bright beam cut across the rest of the yard and into the rows of softly waving corn. And there they were. Several dozen shining awful sideways eyes from some other world, or other plane of existence staring back at me while that equally horrible hissing sound rang out through the rows. And just as quickly as I revealed the eyes, they slammed closed and the hissing stopped, leaving just an overly bright beam of light, shining into the endless lines of withering crops. I shut off the light and dropped it, then bent over and dropped my hands to my knees to steady myself. Dude, what the fuck? Zack said with his hands in his hair, and a crazed expression on his face that was somewhere between terrified and exhilarated. I told you, I said, suddenly breathless and fighting back nausea. The feeling of terror I'd felt as a child came rushing back, but I was also oddly relieved that it hadn't been a dream all along. I felt like I might pass out, but was able to take several deep breaths as it passed and turned to my friend to help me decide what to do now that my secret had been revealed. So now what? I asked, 
completely at a loss for words. We kill those fucking freaks, Zack said and turned to face me, his eyes shining with a sort of gleeful purpose. He rushed into the corn before I could stop him, and I saw the tassels at the top moving across as he ran to the spot where we'd seen them. He emerged a couple of seconds later, still wild-eyed and more excited than I'd ever seen him before. They're not there, he said and sat down next to me, his wheels clearly spinning inside of his head. But we'll get him. I flopped down next to him, my body grateful to be in a more relaxed state, and kept listening. Yeah, man, I need to make a plan, but they'll be dead by the end of the month. Zack threw his arm around me and stared out into the field. I sagged slightly toward him, grateful that he was taking charge and taking on the burden I'd carried around for so many years. We were too excited to sleep much that night, as Zack chattered on about the various ways he could kill my creatures. But before I dozed off, as the dawn light peeked under my curtains, I allowed myself to fantasize about Zack and I running away and making a new life after the creatures were dead. I could finally move on, and could help my friend do the same, and we'd get married and raise families next to each other, and neither of us would have to feel scared or alone again. For the first time in a very, very long time, I felt happy. Even more than that, I felt hopeful. For the next two weeks, Zack and I crafted a plan to kill the creatures and arranged everything we'd need to carry out the plan. My parents were planning to take a rare trip out of town to go to an uncle's retirement party three towns over, so we'd have a full 24 hours to ourselves to destroy the monsters lurking in my field. The plan was fairly simple in the end. Zack knew a kid in his neighborhood who had a disturbingly advanced understanding of explosives and was more than happy to rig up some rudimentary system of mini-bombs in exchange for some beer and a military-style knife Zack carried around on the weekend. I didn't understand the details when he explained it to us, but he even built a remote detonator so he wouldn't tip off the creatures by lighting a fuse. And so the exchange was made the day before my parents left town. We sneaked the homemade explosives into my bedroom and waited until my parents left the next morning to set the trap. My parents left around noon, and as soon as we couldn't see their tailgate at the end of the road, Zack and I gathered our backpacks full of M80s and headed toward the field. Zack headed straight into the field and to the spot we'd seen the eyes a handful of nights before. I hung back for a second, feeling the panic rise in my chest at the thought of encountering whatever they were in full daylight. I'd never ever gotten closer than 20 feet away from the field, wary of whatever tentacles or robotic arms they might have hiding in the rows that could reach out and snatch me at a moment's notice. I counted to 20, and when I didn't hear any screams from Zack, I followed my best friend into the rows. In no time at all, we had a line of explosives that spanned the area where we'd seen the eyes. Even if we didn't kill all of them, we'd definitely destroy most of them, and a shiver ran through me as the gravity of what we were planning to do started to sink in. I knew there was a chance we'd just anger them and unleash whatever potential rage lived inside of them that they'd held back for so many years for some unknown reason but I shoved that thought deep down and looked to my friend for the next step. Let's cover him up, he said, and nodded his head once, decisively. Smart, I agreed, and we started gathering discarded leaves from the corn plants to lay lengthwise along the explosives to mask their presence. Once the bombs were sufficiently covered, we nodded at each other once more and exited the field, 
our hearts racing with accomplishment and anticipation. Later that afternoon, we connected all of the garden hoses we could find and stretched them out until they reached the edge of the field. I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to explain the hole in the crops that would inevitably appear after we detonated a sizable amount of ammunition at the edge of my parents' yard, but I was going to do my best to mitigate the damage. Once everything was in place, we sat on my front porch and drank beers until the sun started to set, far too amped to do anything else. The sun slowly crept down below the horizon line, and eventually it was dark enough that we could barely see each other on the porch if it wasn't for the faint light coming through the front window from somewhere inside. We sat in silence for a long time, until Zack finally took a deep breath and said, Well, yeah, I agreed, my voice barely a whisper. And with that, I pulled the cursed flashlight out of my bag and we started our walk to the cornfield. We had talked through the simple plan dozens of times, We'd stand close together, and once we were close enough for the detonator to work, I'd count to three softly enough for Zack to hear, and once I'd reached three, I'd turn on the light to confirm the creatures were there, and as fast as he could, Zack would set off the explosives. I'd be in charge of putting out any fires after that. Once we reached our agreed-upon spot, Zack put his hand on my shoulder and squeezed just once. The gesture was so warm and unexpected. It caught me off guard and I almost suggested we forget about the plan and score some more beers and listen to music instead. Instead, I began my whispered countdown. One, two, three. As soon as I hit three, I clicked on the light with the intensity of an Air Force pilot honing in on a target, and there they were, all in a line, horrible and hissing. The light illuminated the line of penetrating eyes, always watching and waiting for years and years. What do you want? I screamed despite myself as years of fear and anticipation bubbled out from deep inside of me. Zack didn't waste a second and depressed the button to set off the crude artillery, and I didn't have time to close my eyes or hit the deck before a series of surprisingly massive explosions went off in the field in front of us, knocking us back hard enough for us to lose our balance. I stumbled back and pinwheeled my arms in an attempt to grab onto Zack for balance, but missed and hit the ground with a hard thud. The moment my ass hit the dirt below, something completely unexpected happened. Suddenly my head, no, my whole body, was filled with the sound of what seemed to be thousands of those beings wailing in agony at once. I slammed my hands over my ears, but the sound only got louder and I could simultaneously feel the physical equivalent of the suffering radiating through my limbs and into my core. It took my breath away and I knew I'd go mad if it didn't stop. I clawed myself up and onto my feet as I stumbled into the cornfield that had become a giant, smoking black crater surrounded by smoldering stalks of broken corn. I penetrated the smoky perimeter, and once inside the blast zone, I was able to see the creatures for the first time. Well, what was left of them anyway? They were an otherworldly mix of metal and softness, and while none of them were intact, I could tell that they were long and thin and each had multiple limbs that I was unable to define as arms or legs or both. I instinctively rushed to the creature that I somehow knew was the leader, and was relieved and sickened to see that it was still alive, but just barely. 
I tentatively kneeled next to it as a symphony of screams filled my being to the point of radiating from my pores, and I cradled its head and turned it toward me. Its row of eyes snapped open once its head was facing mine, and a powerful and urgent voice parted the screams that filled my head, and I could hear clear as day. We were the only thing holding it back. And then louder. We were the only thing holding it back. The eyes then drooped shut as the life left the creature's body and the wailing ceased at the same moment. Without the awful howling drowning out all thoughts and sound, the world suddenly came back into focus and I heard a new and even more terrifying sound. I dropped the creature and scrambled to my feet. I ran as fast as I could out of the field and screamed at Zack to run as I grabbed him and pulled him toward the perceived safety of my modest home. We crossed the yard at lightning speed and took the stairs on the porch three at a time. I only paused for a moment to look back before I entered the house, and from the slightly elevated vantage point, I could clearly see something enormous and terrifyingly fast ripping through the corn and parting like the sea as it headed straight towards us. This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Kieran Regan. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join at Patreon slash PleaseLeavePod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at PleaseLeavePod. Our email is PleaseLeavePod at gmail.com, and our website is PleaseLeavePod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production.